Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode number 109. I'm your host, Eric Moore, and this week, back on the program, is our semi-permanent, almost permanent co-host, Jay Prestocelli. Jay and I are going to do an hour and a half straight of the history of shipping containers. Jay, how are you doing today? Good. I, I can't wait to talk about the Suez Canal for an hour and a half. <laughs> We're actually not going to do that. We're actually going to talk about expected value uh, going forward, forward returns, valuation, and kind of all roads lead be to lead back to hedged equity. But I will mention, yeah, I'm the one who actually reads obscure shipping container blogs. And uh, as we speak, there is a container ship that ran aground and is basically sideways in a canal. And you don't want to be sideways in a canal. And it's caused a huge bottleneck. The Suez Canal is a major route between the Rotterdam port in Amsterdam and China, two major, major ports. But yeah, Jay, it's 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 interesting. You know, I follow I read a book called The Box from Mark Levinson. I'll put it into the show notes. And it's actually kind of fascinating history of con- how containerization um, was was almost, and I'll, uh, this is me saying it, um, kind of like creation of the internet in some ways for shipping. But um, Jay, maybe I'll I'll hold off on an hour on that. Yeah, like listen, I think it's it's interesting and it's relevant how how um, uh, I'll say fragile the transportation network is globally. Right, you get one ship. It's a big ship, by the way. One ship sitting sideways in the Suez Canal and stopping all of that traffic. You know, how do you extrapolate that to things like inflation and fuel costs? It's all linked. Yeah, and it, and fuel costs and container rates were already already going up. But it's it's just one of those things. Like we always talk on our investment committee meetings. What are the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, and you know things that we're looking at. We're always like, oh, interest rates, inflation. We're looking at earnings, and then every once in a while, something pops up. Now, this could have no effect on the market. It could have effect on the market, and that's kind of why we're hedged. But let's leave that discussion for. I, I will give you credit, Derek. Like three weeks ago, you brought up containers on our investment committee call, and and in all fairness, we laughed. We almost laughed you off the call. Like, come on, man. Like, who's really watching that? But you are, <laughs> and now it's relevant. So I got to give you props for being ahead of the curve on this one. Yeah, thank you very much. I will continue to to monitor obscure stuff, but uh, we'll leave that from another time. Let's talk a little bit about what expected value is, and the, I I want to talk about the show Deal or No Deal before we get into a John Husband piece, which uh, kind of made the point there is option value of cash, or he makes the point, you know, having tail risk or hedged equity. That we'll talk about, but let's talk about the the show Deal or No Deal. So Jay, right? It's Howie Mandel host it. If you haven't watched Deal or No Deal, um, go into anyone's house today. Oh, hopefully, you know them. Like I don't want you to get in trouble, but go into anyone's house, turn on like CNBC or some channel at a random hour, and chances are you'll probably see that show, right, Jay? Yeah, and and the reason why it's so interesting to guys like us is it's a math show hidden in, as a game show, right? It's always uh, well, you know, I'll let you give the two second overview on it, but it is funny how you know our our day jobs apply to this uh, to this game show. Yeah, and so if you haven't watched it, I mean, you know, Google it, YouTube. But basically, 
you are on stage with Howie Mandel and you've got one case next to you and you've got, I don't know how many cases, like 20. And you go through rounds and each case has an amount in it. And so if you say, Howie, I want to open that case and it's case number 25, uh, they open the case and it's a million dollars. That means that million dollars comes off the board and it won't wind up in your your remaining case. Now the game- right. you, you know that your case is not the million dollars, right? You, you kind of by process yeah. of elimination are trying to guess the value of your case. And Jay, you, the person doesn't have to wait until the end, right? I mean, they could, they open cases, open cases, and then at some point they get a call from the banker, right? And the banker offers some money. Yeah, they're always getting an offer to have their case bought out, right? The case, the banker's always trying to give them a value. And I would almost call that as, you know, the mark, right? The way the market is going to value that case because you can infer from the cases that came off the board what the potential value is of the case you're you're holding, right? The million is the largest case. And when that goes, or the half a million case goes, you're like, well, I just lost the big money. I know my case isn't worth nearly as much as it was when I first picked it. Yeah. So to set this up, let's pretend we're playing the game and you already know about the show or you've paused and at least Googled it uh, for more details on deal or no deal. But let's say you have four cases left. You got there's a and you look up on the board, you know you have four cases left because you can see the cases, and here are the amounts that potentially are in any one of those cases. Remember, if you tell Hyo Mandel, I want to open that case and it's opened, you don't win it, that case that amount comes off the board. But the amounts are as follows: a million, five hundred thousand, twenty dollars, and a hundred. And so if you have four cases left, you have a one in four chance of the case next to you, you know, being one of those amounts. Now you have to use probabilities. One in four equates to, you got a 25% probability of having one of those amounts. And if you want to do something called the expected value, you take the probability, which is 0.25 times each of those amounts. So 0.25 times a million is is 250,000. And you do that for each of them and you add it up and you would say the expected value or payoff is a little over 375000 So Jay, at this point, if they offer you money to leave the show, uh, you normally would say, well, if my expected value is three seventy-five, and the offer is more than that, or the offer is less than that, Jay, what do you do here? Yeah, and, and uh, the, the math says if the offer to give the case up is you know, higher than that expected value payoff, you should take it, right? But, you know, the number you just gave, there's two cases that are worth more than 375, right? The million and the half a million are both on the board. This is where it gets interesting to say, all right, maybe I'm going to, maybe I'm going to keep, you know, playing this game and remove uh, some cases, right? But you also have a 50% chance of making a hundred or uh, or less. And so it is an interesting dynamic. It's the way the math works and it's how you come up with the value. Of course, naturally the banker always undervalues what they're offering because they want you to continue to stay in and, you know, and eliminate those other cases that have, are of high value. It's worth mentioning too, if if you open one more case and it's the million, your expected value goes down to not 375, but a little over 165,000. So some of this is right. You got to decide, do I want to go home with $100 or $20 potentially, or do I want to go home with what is offered to me? But uh, again, we'll suggest Googling deal or no deal. Or, or It's a fun show to watch. TV. If you're a math guy, it's a fun show to watch. I always, you know, 
I, I always, uh, wanted to play that show and I, you know, I realized it'd be difficult in the heat of the moment to do expected value calculations in your head, but you know, we're options guys, maybe we could do it, but let's. <laughs> Derek, you know, you'd pick the first two cases would be the million and a half a million right off the board. Of course. Like, well, there goes that fun. Yeah. I would go home with nothing. Although at least I wouldn't have to pay uh, California taxes on the amount I won. That's true. But listen, at least you'd know you are armed with the knowledge. Doesn't mean it's always going to work out. Plenty of people yeah. make money on that show that aren't doing <laughs> a value, expected value calculation. <laughs> so let's transition to John Hussman uh, puts out different material. Uh, he is, I believe he's got some funds. And I, I think, I'm not sure if he's a value guy or not, but he's been bearish and he looks at valuation and look, the, uh, he's incredibly intelligent from the stuff that I read, from everything I read, um, certainly. Um, but he, I would say he's uh, more bearish than most. And, you know, there's been a lot of people, especially the value camp, that's been very, you know, bearish on valuations. I can tell you 10 years ago, uh, you know, the expected 10-year returns people were putting out were like 3%. It wound up being 13.3 over that decade. But Jay, I want to set up, now that we talked about expected value, um, let's talk about what he says, the option value of cash. So Jay, you and I always hear a lot of people say, hey, I think the market's too high. I want to wait. Of course, we have a solution to that. You'll be delving into that a little bit more. But in the example he he gives, he says, look, you could buy a stock today for about $74.40. And 10 years later, I'm certain, we're not saying he's certain where the market will be, nor will I, I or you say that, but it will be $100. So if you did that, your return would be about 34.4%. Now, of course, I'll link to this. It's a very long article, but detailed uh, are in there, and I encourage people to read it. That's about 3% annualized return. And he says, look, if the expected value going forward, and we'll talk about his projections for uh, you know, a, a blend of stocks and bonds in a second is lower or the volatility expected is low. Uh, what if you wait? Well, if you wait and you buy that same stock one year later uh, at $93, your annualized return goes down to 0.7%. If you were wait and you buy it 20% lower at $59.52, well, then your return is you know, plus 5.32% annualized return. So you go from about 34% to 68%. And he says, look, what if we did a probability of 51% of the first return and 49% that we'd be able to buy it lower? You do those same expected value uh, calculations and the expected value is 3%, which is the same as his initial idea where you buy the stock today. Again, these are all hypotheticals. So his point is that instead of, and he makes the point too, as I said, um, either hedge to equity or, or tail risk um, as a preferable thing given the, the low expected return that he's saying, not us. The point, Jay, is you know, there is value in waiting if you think the market is going to uh, you know, give us a lower return. Um, now, the problem here though is you don't know what the market's going to do. And Jay, the market might be much higher. You might miss it. So I think this is really interesting. And when I read it, I immediately thought of 
you know, what we do with, with sort of our, our buy and hedge uh, strategy idea. So Jay, thoughts on this? Yeah. So um, uh, I, I, you know, can appreciate husband's work on this. If I was to, you know, even simplify this, hey, sometimes it's better to wait to buy lower, right? And, and the environment matters when you make that decision. Uh, and if the decision is, if the environment is higher volatility with an expected lower return, by the way, both of those things are not great for, for overall portfolios, then it makes sense to wait. I think that's what his his message is. Um, the problem is with his message of 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 waiting, and and actually that's not necessarily his message. He doesn't think cash is the right alternative here. But the pro- the problem is, like you said, nobody really knows what the market is going to do, right? Nobody knows if the market's going to go up or down. And so, you know, is there a way where you can be opportunistic, meaning wait? Uh, if the markets have a pullback, right, chance of higher volatility and expected lower returns tell you there's going to be some bad periods uh, ahead. Is there a solution that lets you do that where you can be opportunistic on a decline? But just in case things reverse and things change where expected returns are higher or volatility drops, you know, that's the example when you would want to buy immediately, right? So is there a way that you could kind of cover both of those bases? And this is leading back to what the solution we give. And so when, when, when you look at this, um, I, I, I can appreciate understanding the environment that we're in. And, to, and there's no argument that we're in a higher volatility environment. Um, I don't know whether I can make the, the argument of higher expected returns than, than, or lower expected returns than average. But, you know, he does, right, a little bit, right? Says, hey, there's a chance a standard portfolio is going to kind of underperform historically. Um, you know, is there a way to still continue to invest and to meet your goals, right? Nobody's meeting their growth goals staying in cash. So how do you how do you manage through that environment? And I think, Derek, you alluded to the fact that we think our our hedged equity process, our hedge equity product and strategy is one that allows you to kind of cover both of those bases, right? Yeah. I mean, rather than waiting in cash, I mean, the challenge is you, you said waiting in cash. You know, imagine in 2010, you said... I'm going to, you know, hold off in cash. Um, or after 2009, how many people did we know that had lower expected returns? Although um, in hindsight, probably at those valuations, there were higher expected returns. But I think, I think the nuance here is, you know, generally with a hedged equity strategy, you're trying to get, you know, around 75% of the upside, but put a floor in the portfolio, you know, somewhere like 8 10%. So I think instead of being in cash, the idea is, well, you, you know, if, if returns, I mean, here he's got an expected return. We'll talk about his expected returns, but he says, look, if it's 3%, if you truly got 70% of that, um, what is that? About 2.1% annualized. So you're talking a difference of 900 basis points, but let's say, the market is not 3% annualized, it's 10% annualized. Well, then you get, you know, the goal is to get about 7.5%. So Jay, that's that's the thing. And then, of course, if you get a drawdown, if you're hedged and can monetize the profits or reinvest the, the you know, the avoided loss, I mean, maybe that's the point in all this, that you do get another shot, right? Yeah. If you're just buying straight stock, you have $1,000 and you buy stock because you don't want to time the market and you buy $1,000 worth, 
and the market drops, you've already made your play, right? You, you're invested, right? But if you're hedged and you made that $1,000 investment, then you're going to be able to take advantage of the dip because you avoided the losses. We do that a few different ways through options, whether uh, there's a you know a, a safe component that didn't get invested, or whether we're using things like long puts for protection. You know, you're gonna have a portion of your portfolio that is appreciating or retained value despite you know the drop of the overall uh, uh, market. And so when you're hedged, you can be opportunistic. We call it Derek the hedger's opportunity, right? So if you're going to put up positions that help you avoid risk, um, when the risk comes, you have to take advantage of it. Um, it's like insurance, right? If you have, if we're Americans, right, you have to have insurance for a lot of things, whether it's healthcare or your car. Uh, you, we understand hedging as Americans. We just don't always apply it to our portfolios, unfortunately, which everybody did. But, you know, you use your insurance when you have an issue. If you had no insurance and you bought a car and that's the only money you had for your car, you're stuck with a, bro- a broken car, a busted car. But if you had insurance, you have a chance to actually get a new car or, you know, at least replace your car, right? It's one of those things that, you know, you have the insurance, you have the hedge, then you need to use it. And so when you do get those market sell-offs, you have to take advantage of that. We absolutely uh, do that. And it's, it is one of the, 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 the side benefits of being hedged. You know, it's like you don't really want to root for the markets to drop when you're invested. And I never do want that. But if they do, you could then become opportunistic while everybody is fearful. I always say this, Jay, and maybe you can comment on your experience, but I never know when we have, you know, a, a brand new advisor and, and new clients to it, or, um, you know, one of, one of our own and our, you know, very small uh, wealth management, right? We mostly do sub-advising, but it's always interesting, right? When you talk to an advisor and he says, Hey, I just talked to this client and they actually want the market to go down and others want it to go up. I mean, I get what you because I I never know when I talk to people. But what's your experience been with that? Well, it's because they probably made a bet one way or another, right? And and uh, usually it's uh, traditional investing with with you know traditional assets of stocks, bonds. Um, You know, if you're you know in cash, you're hoping to buy cheaper than where the market is today, right? So you're kind of rooting for a pullback. If you're invested, you're rooting for the market to go up. You know, it's one of those things that uh, I, I'm with you, Derek. I never really know where uh, an advisor has positioned their portfolios and their clients. But with us, you know, we, we always tell them, don't worry about that. Like, you don't have to make that guess anymore, right? Because you're not going to get it right every time. You're probably only going to get it right, you know, half the time. Even the best on Wall Street only get it right seven out of 10 times. And that ends up being, you know, pretty painful, whether you missed out on a strong run in the market or, you know, you zigged when you should have zagged and, you know, you, you know, ended up missing the upside, but then feeling all of the downside, right? It's just, a, it's, it's hard to do. And so, you know, we try to take that off people's plate and, you know, let me circle back to the, uh, to the husband work. Um, you know, if, if you can, you know, if you want to guess on the expected returns in the market, if you think you can do that, um, uh, then you're, you're a better investor than I or Derek and, uh, and fine. But, you know, we like to say, it makes the most sense to to plan for both scenarios, right? Whether the market goes up or it's going to be, you know, low returns over the next whatever five to ten years. There's a reason I read his stuff. I think it's good, um, but I can tell you if if grade if, if graveyards were filled instead of dirt 
with the paper from research reports from analysts across the street making market predictions, uh, you would have more than enough paper because most most predictions do not come true. Uh, most predictions are wrong. Yeah. And you know, it's almost a safe, I've always felt it's a safer bet to say, well, we're concerned about the market down. We're going to be conservative. I mean, that's a safe thing to say because if you're wrong, hey, it went up. Okay. That's good for everybody. If you're right, hey, I told you it was going to get bad. It's harder to make the decision to be invested, right? To be in the market, even though the odds and history tell us that there's more up years than down years, a lot more up years than down years. And uh, it's hard to make, you know, bull calls on the market. Uh, but, you know, to me, those are the bravest uh, uh, market participants that make the bull call on the market versus the bear. Because it's almost like, well, if I'm wrong, it's okay. I made money anyway in the market, right? It's one of those things. Yeah. And to put a little color before we move on to a little more on Hussman's work that uh, I think it's really interesting. You know, the, the reason why I'm, I'm never quite know when an advisor's client, you know, wants the market just to go up or wants to go down, it's a theory that, hey, if I only experience on the downside, if the market goes down 50%, but I only experience, you know, 8% down, I'm plus, you know, uh, 42%, hypothetically, right? Uh, hypothetically of what I've, uh, to the good. So then, you know, positions get reset. Uh, but Jay, the reality is most clients want the market to go up and we'll take, you know, 70, 75% of a really nice upside. Yeah. And that's probably all you need anyway, right? It's uh, unless you really have to, you know, you have an aggressive outlook or an aggressive need, then fine. There's other strategies for that. But, you know, most investors don't need to, A, to beat the market or B, much more than that, you know, six to 7% a year return that you can get from capturing just 75% of the upside of the market. Jay, moving on to more expected value and more uh, John Huntsman uh, stuff that I, I do like to read. So he he puts out a piece and he does, uh, let's see, how does he do this here? He's looking at the equity risk premiums. He's looking at, uh, so a portfolio of 60% equities by 60% equity, I mean S&P 500 uses T-bonds, uses T-bills. So uh, for bonds, it's a 10-year. And then he uses, uh, I think he uses a little bit of 30-year. He might use some T-bills in here, which is short duration. But it's kind of 60-30-10 portfolio. And what he does is he runs his own calculations and he comes up with an expected value for this portfolio mix on an annualized basis on a 12-year go forward. So it means if you invest today at the end of 12 years, based upon where everything is today and his internal calculations, um, he says what your annualized return will be. He put out, I think this is February. I don't know if I've seen it updated. Uh, for this mix, he has negative 5.75%, uh, which is probably as low as it's been since 1928. Um, maybe 99, uh, 99, I think was lower. Um, the reality is the real return going forward, uh, could be much higher. And we've seen other analysts say, look, if the market even just gave us 3% annualized return, it would be an outlier to the downside on a regression model. But I think this is, um, this is interesting because it, it also points to hedging because you don't know what the market's going to do. 
But I also think this once again points back to the idea of just being 100% in a hedged equity strategy versus a, you know, the 60-40 mix or 60-30-10. So I think, again, I mean, this just points to the problem with bonds, right? Well, I think, you know, in in his model, 40% of the portfolio is in bonds, right? With rates at, you know, historically low end of the range uh, numbers, it's... uh, you know, it's it's going to be a trying period for bonds. You know, um, I'm constantly speaking to people about you know the sensitivity that bonds have to interest rate uh, interest rate changes when rates are so so low. And Derek, you are you are our you know kind of resident bond expert, uh, and you could uh, expand on this a lot better than I can. But you know, part of the reason for this decline, the, the projected decline in Hussman's model has to do with the portion of the portfolio that's allocated to treasuries. And, you know, it's, it's, it's odd. Like we're in this scenario where um, treasuries feel riskier than high yield, right? That's usually, that's usually the inverse. And I know we didn't plan on talking about that, but maybe it's something we could talk a little bit about where uh, because of the sensitivity to interest rate changes in treasuries, they have a you know they, they, there's a skew to a decline in value in those uh, those particular instruments. Whereas, say, high yield has a higher correlation to the stock market. Yes, it's still a fixed income product, and usually has more sensitivity to interest rate risk, but maybe not because of its correlation to stocks. So, you know, I feel like we're in a little bit of bizarro world where treasuries seem to feel a little riskier than even something like high yield. That's fascinating you say that. And I think it's, I hadn't planned on talking about correlations, but you bring it up. I mean, I I think uh, from memory, right, high yield has over a 70% correlation to the equity market, meaning equities go down 10%, you'd expect high yield to go down 7%, right? Historically, treasuries have been anti or non-correlated, meaning they've gone up when the market's gone down. And look, I'll be the first to admit, treasuries worked last year in March and February. 100% they worked. But I think you bring up a, yeah, but you bring up a really interesting point, especially given the kind of hissy fit the market threw when, you know, God forbid rates went from 0.7 to 1.6 in the 10 year. So I think what you're saying is, um, number one is, what if that correlation, the anti-correlation doesn't hold? And two, on your point on, on duration, you know, a 30-year bond at near, you know, at 2% probably has a duration of something, I'm doing this in my head, like 27 years. And that means is a 1% gain in interest rates would cause a 27% loss in treasuries. But when 30-year treasuries are 15%, the duration might have been you know 12, right? So only a 12% loss. But Jay, that's interesting you bring up the correlation. And- well, you know, like things are kind of reversing right now. Like what we've seen this month has been, I mean, let's just say, you know, the, the last two weeks in, in March here, right? Uh, uh, you have seen as- treasuries, as yields have risen, which means bond prices have dropped, you look at, say, the NASDAQ 100, that index has also dropped. So if you thought, hey, let me create some diversification in my portfolio of growth stocks and treasuries, 
you would lose on both because right now those two have had a a, 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 a positive correlation, meaning they both dropped at the same time. It is, like I said, I feel like we're in a little bit of bizarro world and, and that's okay. That's why we, uh, you never know how it's going to get silly on you in any of the, you know, with any, whatever the market throws at you. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, the, the historical inverse relationship between stocks and bonds that may be breaking down while rates are this low. You know, we never know what's going to happen five minutes from now in the market versus certainly 10 years. But you made mention of, you nicely said, uh, I, I was the one talking about container rates three weeks ago. You know, and I wrote my book, uh, uh, Broken Pie Chart, uh, available on Amazon. Uh, by the way, Jay, a great Easter gift, um, as, you know, as is your book, Buy and Hedge. Uh, instead of buy and hold. Yes, I, I'm, I'm putting uh, your book in and uh, everybody's Easter basket this year, Derek. As as you should. But I wrote about this and I said, you know, what if it's some spike back to normalized rates or some some spike in rates that also causes you know a, a downturn in the market and that correlation breaks? And I was making the argument against the 60-40 portfolio. And yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a really interesting way uh, to put it. Of course, high yield has its own risk, and and you know we we always point that out. But it, you know, I, I wish I could find it. I'll try and find it and put it in the show notes. But the, the CFA, uh, what what do you call that? Chartered Financial Analyst. I should have remembered that. Uh, they they published stuff on their blog, and and they published a research report, and they looked at rolling ten year returns on on ten year Treasuries. And what they found was the annualized return, more often than not, was simply the, the coupon rate on, on the treasury or maybe the yield to maturity. So, you know, if, if treasuries, 10-year yields are only 1.7, I mean, shouldn't you expect over the course of the next 10 years to earn that? And it's kind of a drag on, on the equity side of the portfolio, no? Uh, 1.7, yeah. I mean, at this point, I'm not sure that's even a real return against inflation, right? So, you know, I, I have, uh, yeah, I, I have said that I felt that the risk associated with bonds with yields this low is probably not worth the return you're going to get. And just in this last month alone with the the 1% move we've seen in the 10 year, whether as a month or two months, you know, that treasury is down 10%. So imagine you were the buyer of the bonds when it was 75 basis points. You're like, great, I'm going to make 75 basis points per year over the next 10 years. And then, you know, rates go to 175 from the 0.75. And now you've just lost 10% in the value of your bond. So now you just, you have to hold this thing. And by the end, you're still going to be negative, you know, on, on, uh, on your payout. Right. So it's, I, uh, we, we, there are times where bonds make sense in a portfolio, especially if you can hedge them, which we will do, but, you know, as a, you know, piece of the overall asset uh, allocation. I think this these days it's 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 hard to think of it as kind of the safe haven because it's really not. I'll give you a, a hypothetical, and it kind of follows in the earlier expected payoff. I'm going to completely hypothetical again. You and I don't know what the market's going to do, but let's imagine that uh, a lot of the analysts are wrong, and you get a 10% annualized return over the next 10 years. Who knows what it's going to be, right? But you know, on a on a 60-40 portfolio, if we assume 1.7% hypothetically and 10% on on so 10% on the 60% and 40% on the, the one on 
Um, your expected, you know, return if you actually got that is about, you know, 6.7%. And guess what? If you were in a hedged equity strategy, hypothetically speaking now, right? We don't know what's going to happen. And you got 10% and you captured 70 to 75% of that. Well, that's seven to seven and a half percent hypothetical annualized return. So that's kind of interesting. I just thought of that on the fly. I don't know if, you know, again, hypotheticals, Jay, but that kind of points to hedged equity. Well, yeah, and and uh, right, I agree with that fully. And and knowing mathematically that you don't have to count on you know traditional or historical correlations to work to have your portfolio you know deliver those returns, right? You just made some. There's a lot of assumptions you just made there in each one of those pieces. But you know, um, in in that example, you know, you're given no opportunity to take advantage of a downswing if you're in the 60-40 mix because you've you've made your play, you're invested, your bet is on the table, you got to let that run its course. Whereas in a hedged equity strategy, you you can be opportunistic, right? So that's not even included in that discussion. Um, forget about the additional returns. And Derek, I'll, I'll throw you on the spot here, right? So at, let's say, 7.2%, we know you double your portfolio every 10 years, correct? At 6%, based on the number that you just said, what, uh, how long does it take to double your portfolio then, right? It's only a 1.2% difference. How many extra years does it take? Well, that's easy. 72 divided by six is 12 if I'm doing back of the napkin, right? So it's two extra years. It's two extra years to double your money. And you say, well, it's only a 1% difference. It's yeah, but that matters, right? And so, you know, if you, if, if, and if your goal is to have, you know, two or three doubles by the time you retire, you know, and you know, that's going to add time to your retirement, right? So that, that, those numbers get uh, uh, silly quickly against you just with, you know, differences of 1%. You know, it matters, especially if you have a growth plan. Yeah. There's a, I, I feel bad. For, I know it's not that I feel bad, but I think, you know, the 60, 40 thing, people have um, been early on this. So he, here's sort of a question, right? A discussion point. You know, I knew people in 2006, 2007 who um, were calling, you know, the top in housing and even earlier, they weren't wrong, but they were, they were sort of early. Right. Um, and of course they could short and hedge, but that's a, it's a different conversation. You know, there's some people calling for the death of the 60, 40 portfolio for many years. And, and I've been one of the people who's been cautious about it. I've, I've been sort of, um, I look fully admit February, March of 2020, guess what? It worked. But, you know, at some point, those people aren't going to be early. They're going to be right. And, uh, you know, given where rates are, um, the marginal opportunity for rates to go lower, in other words, like how, how negative could they go? It, like, we got to be at some sort of a, a, a downside floor. I mean, so I don't know, Jay. I, I just think it's... It, Maybe I'm just talking out loud, but well, I, I'll, let me let me give a different spin on the same message point. You know, the the sixty forty mix is a product of modern portfolio theory, and you know we that's the whole concept of if you want more return, you got to take more risk, and it's you know correlations and and uh, and diversification, all of those things rolled up in that. But the problem with um, modern portfolio theory is it's not so modern anymore, right? It was developed in the nineteen fifties, so it's seventy years old. There are a lot better tools uh, and a lot better approaches to improve upon that. But by the way, it doesn't mean you throw out the whole thing. 
you know, the reason we name our strategy buy and hedge is because buy and hold is pretty good, but buy and hedge is a little better. And because when you can hedge and protect, things are better. And so, you know, you just have better tools today, Derek, to be able to implement uh, a more efficient use of your cash and give you a greater chance of meeting your goals. And, and you know, there weren't really strong option markets in the 70s, 80s, right? 90s started ticking up. But what you have now, the options market is extremely accessible, very liquid, and a lot more affordable to trade. But you couldn't do that 20, 30, 40 years ago, but now you can. And so it's accessible to the individual investor. And so, you know, it does make sense to be a little more progressive when it comes to, you know, long-term investing solutions than something that was developed 70 years ago. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, we always see, hey, if you would have bought the S&P and reinvested dividends since 1929, guess what? Vanguard didn't offer indexed mutual funds until I think the late 70s or early 80s. I think I'm right on that. So yeah, you'd have to have a huge cash, a pile of cash to actually invest in the S&P 500, right? And then be able to reinvest the dividends in the appropriate allocation. It's almost undoable. It's actually almost even undoable now. Like even though you have index funds and you could have them reinvest until, uh, you know, partial shares came out, you still couldn't even replicate with say an SPY or IVV ETF. It was groundbreaking. I think it was Charles Schwab who did this. Um, could have been early 80s. Could have been something. Actually, you know what? It might have even been 1990. I, but I, I know I know Chuck Schwab did this where he offered free you know, dividend reinvestment. But prior to that, I mean, think about it. If you wanted to buy, this is, neither, this is totally unrelated to hedging, but um, if you wanted to buy all the stocks in the S&P 500 you know, in 1960, Guess what? You would have had to buy all those stocks. You would have paid 500 different commissions. And we know commissions would have been thousands of dollars, probably for depending on the portfolio for each position. And then if you wanted to reinvest the dividends, you would have to pay more money in commissions. It just wasn't feasible. Um, and I and I it's not wrong to do to to look back because now you can buy the index and reinvest dividends. And, and that's helpful information. Uh, but it's just one of those things I always look at and say, yeah, the reality is. It's just like, you know, when you when you use bond returns from the Civil War days, right? <laughs> um, you know, you just, you, you wouldn't be able to buy those. By the way, uh, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I, I do believe, did you work in a Tracy Morgan reference from the commercial? Uh, pretty sure. I think you said pretty, pretty I think you sure. said pretty yeah, I think you said pretty good. If anyone hasn't seen that, again, turn on any TV. He, he eats strawberries. He says, I'm pretty sure these aren't, you know, uh, poisonous. But all right, Jay, I think we've covered uh, good ground. We, we talked about deal or no deal, expected payoffs. And uh, I'll, of course, link to uh, the different pieces. We even talked about shipping container rates. One day I'm going to get an in. analyst on. You got it in there, man. I'm going to try and get an analyst to do an hour on, because uh, it's it sort of, melds a lot of the pricing around the world. So Jay, thanks so again I, for- uh, I think it, yeah. I think that'll be interesting. Just don't invite me to host that one with you. <laughs> I'll listen. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't uh, help giving you a little more garbage about that. Yeah. So listen, before we wrap, I mean, the message is, uh, instead of staying in cash, if you're worried about the high valuations, just be hedged. And that that's a, a solution. We think it's a it's an interesting solution as opposed to the 60-40 portfolio for all the reasons we talked about. And the reality is none of us know where the market's going to be today, much less than 10 years. But 
we can tell you how to hedge it and get exposure. So with that, Jay, thanks again for coming on. And uh, we won't have you back for container shipping hour, but uh, we will have you back again for a future episode. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Derek.